Welcome to the Talking Solutions with the Chesh podcast. I'm your host, William Cheshire. Join me in learning about optimistic solutions to some of society's problems as we interview entrepreneurs, small business owners, and employees, among others, working to provide solutions and bring positivity into the world. Welcome into another edition of the Talking Solutions with the Chesh podcast. In this episode, we got a really fascinating one, at least for me, something that I find very interesting and something I'm very excited to learn about. The CEO of Atlas Prime NRG is with us today, Mr. Christian LaCour. And Christian, just how are you today? I'm well, well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. And Christian, describe to us a little bit about Atlas Prime NRG and in, in your quest to kind of reverse climate change one business at a time. What is it that Atlas Prime Energy is hoping to accomplish and do? Yeah, sure. So Atlas Prime Energy is a, is a company that directly uh, provides businesses affordable and reliable electricity to lower their overhead, their carbon footprint, and in some cases, give them access to ancillary services that their electric utility may offer to help stabilize the grid and just give them a whole new revenue stream. And all of this um, is going to tie together in a way to ultimately reverse climate change by 2050. By 2050. I love it. I love the solution and what it offers and the complexity of it as well. And the opportunity here for you to kind of explain to us and and the listening audience about kind of what it does and, and what that solution is a little bit. So uh, I guess just to start from the top to, to make people fully aware, tell us a little bit about the problem right now with a lot of uh, businesses and the use of energy uh, and why your solution and whatnot is going to be more efficient and, and ultimately better uh, in terms of, you know, in the future, hopefully reversing climate change. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the conversation around energy and, and the use of natural gas and electricity is something that's prominent to all businesses, whether you're, you know, they're operating in developed or a developing world. So I mean, which one do you want me to focus on mostly? Because I, 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 for either, I could talk for hours. Yeah, let's focus a little bit uh, on the business side of things, right? And, and what you're trying to accomplish with that solution. So in what ways are, are businesses um, maybe misusing uh, energy right now, or maybe not misusing, but maybe wasting energy that they just don't think about because the knowledge hasn't been there. And then that's where your solution might come in so they can you know, reuse a lot of that power. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of opportunity in heat recovery, actually. And I like to talk about heat recovery in, in two ways. There, there are certain applications that people are very familiar with. Like we've all been there when it was way too hot to cook and you just decided not to, right? But if you owned a bakery, like that's not an option. You still have to open, you still have to bake the bread, you still have to make those cookies to actually, you know, bring in, uh, bring in revenue through the door and actually feed, you know, your employees and your family and so on. And there are commercial bakeries that have heat recovery systems to kind of take the heat that, that's extra from the oven and reuse it in, you know, for space heating or to, to heat up the preheat the water. Um, but in, in certain areas of the world where the climate is not right or you just don't have the ability to reuse it for space heating and, and you know, preheating water is your only option, uh, there's actually quite a bit of energy that's just being wasted that could be turned back into electricity. Um, so when you're, you're looking at an industrial bakery in a developing country, that's, that's something that is extremely valuable to them because they need that electricity. It's not something that's readily available like we have here in the U.S. Whereas here in the U.S., for example, there are some oil refineries that they're extracting. I'm not going to get into the whole process of how like oil and gas is made. But in some natural gas wells, they actually have to produce their own power on site. And so part of the product that they're producing, they actually have to consume it themselves to keep their operations running. And generators, by and large, they're just like the, the, the engine in your car, right? It's not, a perfect, it's not a perfect system. There are some losses associated with that. And funny enough, way back in the day when cars were starting to get commercialized, there was a woman that had the idea of reusing the heat from the engine to warm up her feet. That was like the first, I believe it was the first heat recovery system that was like widely known uh, to the general public. But 
the reason why I bring that up is that engines work on the exact same principle. There's, you know, you're just burning something and there's a piston moving up and down. The mechanics are pretty much the same. And so the heat losses are, are pretty much the same. So I, I did the math and it, it turns out that if you can take that heat and turn half of it back into electricity, you can reduce the natural gas consumption at oil refineries, at, you know, natural gas wells by 25 to 30% which is huge because I mean, we, we've all, we've all felt the gas prices go up in the, these past couple of weeks. So a big jump like that would be extremely, extremely beneficial, not just to the general public, but to the country as a whole, because the whole conversation around en- energy security is, is just, you know, it's much more prominent. Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on a few things there with the oil, the gas refineries as well, and then the bakeries in development uh, countries. And I know that bakeries are kind of a, a focal point uh, in it or a niche or however you'd want to explain it uh, in another well, Great opportunity for that uh, to use heat and renewably. But before we kind of get into that a little bit as well, I, I'd be really curious to know, and I'm sure people are interested What's the learning process about that? As in, where do you start from a research perspective? Obviously, you have the knowledge and the technology, but where are you looking at and identifying uh, where this big problem is and how do you kind of go about doing that in order to make sure that you're kind of attacking the right areas? And Because I'm sure, in my mind at least, seems like it could be a little overwhelming because I bet you there's probably a lot of places to start and go after. So what's kind of that process to narrow it all down? Yeah, and... and uh, the, the approach that I that I end up taking uh, is not something that's recommended at all. Most entrepreneurs they have a buyer already lined up. They have a problem that is very close to the to the money back. Right? For me, it wasn't about money in the beginning. It was about solving the world's toughest problems. Um, and so that's why you know it started with blackouts, then it grew to climate change, and you know nobody really owns that problem on their own. But in terms of finding Finding that first customer when when there's a product that is so versatile, you have to look into the methodology that I use. It was a value analysis across. Okay, who who has who has the deep pockets? Who do I have access to? Who actually cares? So they're like trying to solve the problem actively, and, and they've tried other solutions, be it solar panels or. You know, they decided to do some load shedding and turn on their generators only certain times and during certain times of the day, or you know, they've tried to retrofit the bakery with more efficient ovens. You know, whatever they're trying to do, there. If if a customer is trying to do something to solve a problem that you know you know they have without your solution, that tells you that they're an early adopter. And finding early adopters is just it's it's the name of the game. You just have to crunch through the numbers. And just test out, okay, which industries are going to respond the fastest, which ones um, have the money, and which ones, you know, are, are actively trying to solve the problem. So those are the first three things that I look for. The other things that are kind of uh, subjective to the founders, subjective to the team is, do we actually love this customer? And this was a difficult one for us because for a long time, I mean, you've seen the rhetoric around the energy transition and the demonizing of the oil and gas industry. So they're, they're not a very um, loved bunch at the moment. Um, and love plays, plays into it. If there's a customer segment that we just don't love, we don't, we don't go into them. Um, but, you know, we have to take a step back and, and really take a look at the timeline that we have. You know, we have 29 years. We don't really have the luxury of working with customers that we love. And then the, the last piece is, you know, just are are we excited to work with that ecosystem? Because every industry has their own culture, right? So, you know, in, in working with them, do they actually feel like a genuine excitement that we're moving forward and we're trying to solve this? And this is something that I was that was very surprising to me when I started talking to um, gas distributors. They're they're all gung ho and really trying to figure out like how did they change their infrastructure to go from natural gas to synthetic gas or hydrogen. And just they're they're doing everything that they can. It's just it's such a heavy ship to turn. It's it's very slow progress. And and most people don't see it until you know the trajectory is just completely different. Yeah, yeah. A couple things 
Oof. A couple things within that answer I kind of want to ask you about. Number one, let's just define something real quick in case there are people out there listening that may not know. So you mentioned 29 years. You've mentioned 2050 a couple times. Why is it 2050? What do they predict could happen or, or you know, what would happen if we didn't do that then? Yeah, to, to put it in the simplest terms um, I can, and, and these are not, you know, my my interpretations. There are other people that have, you know, climate scientists and you know, researchers that I've looked into the, the consequences of ignoring climate change are not decarbonizing everything that we do fast enough. The IPCC, they, they did their research and, and figured out that, yeah, we don't have a whole lot of time by 2050 is kind of like our, our point of no return, but there is still hope to actually keep the, the, the global temperatures below 1.5 degree Celsius above the, the average. And, and so like, that's, that's kind of our deadline. And if, if we, if we don't meet that deadline, 1.5, I heard someone say this once, one, an extra 1.5 degrees Celsius is like driving a car and running it into a brick wall at about 65 miles per hour. <laughs> the chances of survival are very, very slim. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that, that you want to try and say, oh, we'll just pick up the pieces afterwards. It's, there might not be pieces left to pick up afterwards. So. Right. And, and that's what the most important part is. And, and obviously we could talk for, for hours about the problem of climate change and all those stuff. But I want to focus a lot on this, the solution, but definitely wanted to talk a little bit just in case people weren't aware of some of the ramifications that come within climate change and whatnot as well. I mean, there's rising seawaters, which then in turn cut off land, which then in turn displace populations, which then in turn mess up a food ecos- ecosystem. And it's just a circular connection. Um, that just kind of goes. So it's certainly important to kind of reverse it. I want to go back to your answer prior when you talked about working, um, you know, with some of those oil refineries and uh, some of those gas giants and things of that nature as well. And, you know, you mentioned something that I think uh, is exciting and maybe might uh, surprise a little bit, but you said that a lot, a few of those companies were companies that were interested in changing. Like, you know, how can we go from, from gas, natural gas to uh, synthetic or to move over to hydrogen at all? So uh, tell me a little bit about why, uh, well, people know what the problem is with gas, but I guess people may not know much about like say hydrogen, for example, as an alternative fuel, uh, fuel source as well. What makes hydrogen an attractive option for these companies to try to grow and move to uh, in terms of, of how energy efficient it can be? Well, it's not really about energy efficiency. The, the case for hydrogen, as far as um, the gas companies are concerned, it's it's a question of, you know, the fact that it's a controlled asset. Like you can actually make hydrogen somewhere, store it, transport it the same way you're transporting natural gas. Like their infrastructure that they spent years, decades building um, is already in place. They just have to make a few modifications here and there. Whereas, you know, when you compare that to, you know, solar, for example, like the, nobody owns the sun. Like there, there's the, the chances of them keeping their business model as it is and continue to serve the billions of people they are serving. Um, you know, they, they're not going to do that by completely ripping out their business model and switching to a completely different product. They need to have a controlled substance that still behaves like like fossil fuels. Um, it's just that with hydrogen, it's the most abundant substance on the planet, uh, in the universe, actually. So the the real challenges uh, with making hydrogen are, are starting to go away very, very quickly. Because in the past, it used to be that the the actual equipment that's used to make it using renewable electricity, what's called green hydrogen, you run renewable electricity through an electrolyzer that splits water, fun side experiment if you've ever done it when uh, when you were in grade school you know that that's a it, it used to be a very inefficient process you get about like 50 percent 50 to 60 percent but now you know you have electrolyzers that are you know at 70 75 so the electrolyzers are getting more efficient there's more demand for it so the you know the the, the cost of ordering these electrolyzers in bulk to really drive down the price, the same trend that we saw with batteries. 
um, in solar panels back in the early 2000s, the early 2010s, where there's just, you know, huge market demand. And it just, you know, the, the price for it plummets because they're just making thousands of these things per hour. That's going to happen to hydrogen fairly soon. So they, that the oil and gas companies or the gas distributors, I should say, are at a very unique position where they have a lot of assets already in place at strategic locations that they just have to make some, some slight variations to so that it still works with hydrogen. Because hydrogen, like, because it's, it's such a completely different element than natural gas, it's, it's a little, I'm not going to get into the, the technicalities of it, but containing it, compressing it, making sure that it's safe, uh, the, the regulations are slightly different. Interesting. I think something as well that, that maybe people may not know or recognize, I, I think there's a big movement within our population, obviously, about, hey, climate change is happening. We have to make changes and we need to move. I think there is what I think there's a lack of is particularly the challenges and the insight to the solution of people. Oh, yeah, we'll just use uh, you know solar panels and everything. Renewable energy will be great. But what you mentioned below is, is all all these established companies. There's the whole business side of it as well. Like you mentioned before, that they need something that's tangible, that's going to work within their already built system and process that they've been doing for decades uh, as well. Are, are you finding that at the very beginning, I guess, when you were kind of looking at these companies, how much of that did you kind of have to need to pivot with a little bit as well as you kind of maybe learned about all these things and the systems that these companies are doing with the fossil fuels and then trying to identify what can kind of replace that but not hurt their business so that it's an attractive option for them? Well, funny enough, I, I didn't run into this whole issue of legacy and, and momentum of an industry looking at oil and gas companies. Uh, I ran into it by looking at, you know, the, the life cycle of power plants. You have these big centralized power plants that are burning natural gas, coal, or, or, or nuclear fuel rods. And these things, to, to be financially reasonable... Uh, you know, the investors have to make their money eventually. And, and the only way to do that is to, you know, you build a power plant and you finance it for, you know, 30 years. And that power plant is, it's going to be there for 30 years. And unless something drastic happens, you know, there, it's, it's really not, really not going to go away. So when I was looking at, okay, like, how do you transition the entire world? Mind you, this was a couple of years ago when I was still thinking at a very high macro level. How do you transition the entire world um, over to renewable electricity? Well, first, like you have to electrify everything, and there's kind of that balance between supply and demand, right? But then, if if the supply shoots up very quickly, say that all of a sudden the the steel manufacturers decide that you know what we're not going to burn uh, we're not going to burn coal or natural gas anymore to to melt the steel. We're going to go with electric furnaces that just you know, they, 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 they just work off of electricity. So now all of a sudden, the, the seesaw, that is the electricity grid, the demand is a whole lot heavier. So then you have, to put, you have to have a lot more generation to bring that whole thing back into balance. And building new power plants is not something that happens very quickly. I mean, it takes, you know, two years in, in construction and design if you're lucky, if it happens that fast, and if there are no delays during construction, you're, you know, you're done on schedule. At best, you're done within five years. Not at best. Sometimes you're done a little sooner than that. But these things, they're, they're huge, multi-million dollar projects that take a while to build. And, and once they're built, they're built. They're not going away. So how do you, how do you move away from using centralized power plants and, and you know, or at least if you're going to create a centralized power plant, create a centralized power plant that has zero emissions. Well, the answer that has been around for for decades is much older than I have. Just build more nuclear power plants. But the public concern around nuclear and what happens when things go wrong—it's too big of a gamble. It's too much of a gamble. Plus, now with behind the meter, so I'm using the term you know grid side and behind the meter. Behind the meter is when you install something that produces electricity directly at the business's premises. So right at your house on top of your roof, like that's a behind the meter solar installation, if you will. A telecom tower that has a generator at the base of it, you know, that's a behind the meter installation. So with that industry really starting to grow, 
And, you know, the idea of, hey, we don't really need a centralized grid anymore. Maybe we can have a bunch of these tiny grids and we can connect them and disconnect them at will to make the entire thing, the entire network a lot more resilient. You know, it's, you have multiple points of failure as opposed to one. If you think back to that seesaw that I was talking about, instead of having that one focal point in the middle, now you have an entire plane with a bunch of points all over the place. It's a lot more stable. So the entire industry just just shifted in the way they, they thought about things um, over the years. And I just realized that even with that shift, the power plants that they built 10 years ago, they're still going to run for another 20 years. They're still going to run for another 30 years. So what do you do with that? The only way that I thought of was to just use the technology that that I noticed would be would have a great impact in developing countries and use that as a heat recovery system for these power plants that are not going to go away and just reduce their their fuel consumption as much as possible and still have them operating at a profit. Yeah. And, and from those numbers, you if I heard you correctly earlier, you said you could probably reduce it potentially uh, 20 to 25 percent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty substantial when you think about it, especially when you combine, you know, all those grids and, and oh, yeah, that, that's really fascinating and interesting. Um, Christian, so put some global numbers to it. I did the math recently. Uh, globally, if every power plant did that, we would reduce two and a half gigatons of CO2 from the 50 billion tons that we're producing every year. Two and a half gigatons. Yeah. Two and a half billion tons of CO2. And we don't even know where to put that right now. But that's that's how much we would stop putting into the atmosphere. So heat recovery and just like stationary engines is it has huge implications. So when I start talking about like, yeah, I'm going to reverse climate change by 2050, I don't it's not just like optimistic speaking. I've done the math. Yeah. <laughs> You've crunched the numbers. You do the math. You've got the the, the algorithm and everything down uh, to get it down by 2050. So it's a very calculated number, that's for sure as well. And for just for people, you know, that's that obviously sounds like a huge number, but that also is just a drastic reduction and can really slow down uh, the contributions, the negative contributions that we're currently making uh, to the atmosphere and things of that nature in the long run. And uh, Christian, I want to talk about your company now, now that I think people and, and we kind of understand the issue and some of the solutions and, and some of that process as well. You mentioned when a few years ago when you were thinking on a macro level, um, obviously suggesting that you've moved down a little bit and more on a, a micro level, if you will. So tell us a little bit about that journey. You know, when did it start? When did you really go, okay, Atlas Prime is going to be this and we're going to focus on that. And, and tell us a little bit about that story uh, and the point that you're at now. Yeah. Uh, well, that that story is is the story of commitment. It's the story of, of falling in love with uh, actually, I, I wouldn't even say that because it wasn't about love in the beginning. It wasn't about anyone else. You know, I, I grew up in Haiti and, and because of planned blackouts, I almost died three times by the time I was 12. Um, you know, a couple of times was pollution. One time it was, uh, it was a riot that was happening. Uh, another time it was actually, you know, when in Rome, you do as Romans do. So I was stealing electricity from my neighbors and almost got electrocuted. Another time my, you know, my wardrobe caught on fire while I was asleep in the middle of the night. So I've been exposed to the implications of not having electricity at a very young age. And I just said, this isn't right. I'm going to fix it. And so making that decision, making that commitment at a really young age is what, you know, it, it's, I kept asking, like, how does this work? Why is this the way it is? Like a true scientist, I just kept going at the problem, just one, one tiny little thing at a time. And eventually, I became an electrical engineer. I graduated from Worcester Polytech um, Institute in Massachusetts back in um, 2013. And now, mind you, like I, at that point, I had completely, you know, put the original. You know how sometimes, like, you start something and you've been at it for so long that you forgot why you started it in the first place, but you got that momentum and you just keep going. So that's what was happening. Like, I showed up on campus with a notebook filled with transistors and capacitors that I ripped out of radios because I didn't know what they were and no one could tell me. So I glued them like an archaeologist. I glued them to a notebook. And on my first day of college, I, I went to my advisor. I said, hey, what is this and where can I learn about it? And, you know, he pointed me to the electrical engineering department. 
Now, fast forward my senior year, I'm graduating. And as part of that curriculum, you have to do like a senior project to qualify as a, as a graduate and whatnot. And my project was actually with the Solar Decathlon, which is a, it's a student competition that the DOE puts out. But that year, it was happening in China. And it was by complete coincidence, mind you. I had no idea what I was going to do as my senior project. I just, you know, I'd been in the lab just chugging away and I just, I never came up with a project. And then randomly, I, I met a professor who, you know, he was from Belgium and he was like, hey, I'm looking for electrical engineers. And, you know, it, it seemed interesting. So I signed up for it and went through the solar decathlon. And that's how I became uh, an electrical engineering consultant at you know, multiple firms since graduating. I've designed, you know, anything from like an elevator in a train station to, you know, high voltage power cables coming into a, you know, $2 million, well, not $2 million, $2 million square foot campus um, here in Somerville to luxury villas, Mosquito Island, and then visiting Richard Branson's, you know, setup and, and really understanding the architecture and now, I've, I've just had a lot of exposure in the construction industry in terms of like how things are done. And in that process, I, I recognize that if, if the client doesn't want something, it's not happening. And there were so many projects that had great potential to have solar, wind, and, and, and just take some really innovative, well, at the time it was like really like cutting edge stuff of like, water reuse and making the building as energy efficient as possible. And sometimes like it would go to the client and they would, they would look at the money and, and cut that stuff out. And it, it broke my heart every single time. And so I, I wanted to, you know, I, you know, by then this, this idea of like, Hey, remember why you became an engineer in the first place to just like bring electricity to people. Like let's, let's, let's revisit that dream. You know, while I was working, I started looking into into power plants. Luckily, one of my coworkers he had worked on multiple nuclear power plants at the time, and you know, I got to pick his brain, and then you know, we shared quite a few laughs. You know, eventually, I I left the company, and then started started Atlas under a different name, because at that point, like in talking with him, I was so convinced that nuclear was the way to go. But I was a very young entrepreneur at the time, and I didn't really understand how important business and marketing and like the non-technical side of things, how important and absolutely vital that stuff was. So as like a true engineer, I just went out and started making things and started networking and teaching myself particle, uh, particle physics and, and, and you know, nuclear physics. And I, I was getting pretty far. And. I realized there was no way I was going to build this in my mother's living room. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> my, my co-founder at the time, he was like, yeah, this is going to take, this is going to take a little bit more time for you to get this together. Because I mean, like the folks at the DOE has been, you know, they've been going at this for years and they haven't really figured out how to get a giant nuclear power plant down to the size of something that fits in, in somebody's living room. And that's what I was trying to do at the time. So we parted ways, and of course, you know, a couple of years later, all these companies start coming out with micro reactors. These exactly the concept that I was trying to put together, just slightly bigger scale of what I was looking at, because I was looking at like sub hundred kilowatt output, and they're you know they're looking at you know about a hundred to like two point five megs, depending on depending on the company that you're looking at, because some of them, they gang them together and it, it gets, it gets pretty interesting. But I, I, I was really proud of myself out of that failure because I realized like as an engineer, what I was thinking was dead on. It was dead on, but I didn't have the money or the go-to market strategy to actually make it a reality. So, you know, we, we shut down the company and I went back to the drawing board for, See, this was 20, 2013. We started in 13. It lasted a year and a half. So like mid-2015, we shut down. And then 2017, I'm in Haiti with my girlfriend at the time. Her friend was getting married. So we were in Haiti. And, and after the wedding, we decided, oh, you know, let's let's just hang out for a couple of days. And, um, you know, let's, let's just 
let's just enjoy our home, right? So me being the nerd and still unable to just shake this question, like how do I solve this? How do I put an end to planned blackouts while climate change and all these other issues around me are going on? Like how do I stay focused? And luckily enough, I had brought this book down with me, The One Thing by Gary Keller. And in it, it helped me make sense of everything that I was, that I, that, that I was seeing. Like if you're like me and you see problems, you want to solve all of them. And this book forced me to look at it in a systematic way and say, okay, how are these problems related? How do we, how do we line them up like dominoes so that if you solve the first one, it makes the next one easier or just it solves the next one and so on and so forth. So I was sitting by the pool and I asked myself the hardest question I had ever asked anyone. What is the one thing that we as a human race can do today? So right off the bat, fusions, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not even on the table. What can we do today to reverse climate change? Because that's a bigger issue in a way that makes all of the socioeconomic issues that are tied to it easier to tackle. So now we're talking clean water, we're talking blackouts, we're talking hunger, we're talking imbalance of trade in, in certain countries, we're talking sex trafficking, we're talking so many issues. I mean, like I like to think of climate change as like the biggest elephant in the world. And if you've heard the story of like, the, the multiple blind people that touch an elephant and they each, have you heard that story? Mm -mm, I have not. Quick, quick, quick side parable here. So there's this elephant that walks into this room, not really sure why, but it walks into this room filled with people that are, that are blind and they can feel the elephant's presence. So they, they walk up to it and try to figure out what it is. And one person, you know, grabs onto a leg, says, Oh, you know, this, this feels like a, like one of those like shopping, you know, those like shopping robots that walk around in, in like grocery stores to check if the aisles are clean. Oh yeah. 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 So he's like, Oh, this, that's what this kind of feels like. Cause it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of big. And another guy like grabs onto the ear and he's like, no, th I mean, this thing is like, it's, it, it has such wide surface area. This has to be like some sort of fan or something. And another guy, you know, he's pulling on the tail and he's like, no, like there's, there's so many hairs on this. This feels like a, like a tassel or a rope of some sort. And then, you know, this, this woman that's out front, you know, who's touching the trunk and the things moving around. She's just like, um, I, I, I think this is like a fire hose or just some kind of robotic arm or something. Like, I don't know. So everybody's got different opinions of what the problem is, but the problem is the whole elephant. It's not just a part of it. And that's the thing with climate change. It's not just the water crisis. It's not just the sex trafficking. It's not just the planned blackouts. It's not just the air pollution and the people that are dying and the people that are being displaced from their homes because, you know, their, their land is no longer agro friendly. If, if that's the word I'm looking for, it's all of these problems pulled together. And when I was looking at it that way, I said, okay, how is this being sustained? Because nothing in the world continues to exist for an extremely long time without it being sustained in some way. It's, it's Newton's laws of thermodynamics. Like if, it, if there's nothing keeping it going, it's going to slow down and stop. So what's keeping it going? And I, I, I didn't look at, you know, the big companies or the, the big countries that, you know, they, they spent billions, like China, they spent a lot of money investing in fossil fuels to really build their infrastructure. And right now they're in the cleanup phase. That's a story that I don't know enough about. I looked at Haiti because that's where I grew up. And I noticed that first it starts with a blackout of some sort for whatever reason, whether it's a hurricane that comes through, an earthquake or whatever happens, right? There's a glitch in the matrix, a blackout happens. And now all the businesses go, oh, this is not, this is not cool. I can't keep, you know, I can't keep the fish refrigerated. I can't keep the lights on. I can't keep this hospital running. We need a backup plan. So they all start buying generators and they install it on their premise. 
seems like a pretty reasonable, harmless solution. But when you have 90% of the country operating like that, everybody's just creating their own power, they're all susceptible to global price changes. So if you have something happen, and this is a true story, by the way, something happens in Venezuela and the price per barrel shoots up, the whole country shuts down. This is what exactly what happened in Haiti from 2018. This is after I left and <laughs> after the wedding and I had been gone by then. But from, from 2018, 2019, the, 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 the Haitian economy was pretty much in gridlock because the gas prices were just way too high. And then here's the kicker. Almost the exact same thing, not to the same extreme, but the exact same thing happened in the 70s. The oil embargo. Same thing, Argentina or Venezuela or somebody, like something happened. I didn't, I'm, I'm not like a big history guy. I'm just like, okay, what happened? Move on. I don't, <laughs> I don't dig into the politics, but same thing happened. Something outside of the country happened. And now the gas prices were up. And now you had these lines of people waiting at the gas station to get gas. And like gas was so much more expensive than getting milk that people were like, I better get the gas, otherwise I'm not going to be able to go get the milk. And this affected so many people. And I've taught there are there are people on my team that lived through it, and they're like, "Yeah, it was pretty bad." So, the system that I was discovering wasn't inherent to only developing countries. This was something that would happen to any country that's relying on fossil fuels way too much, because too many businesses rely on it the prices go up so the businesses have no choice but to raise their prices that creates an imbalance of trade i i realize i've thrown that that word around a little bit it's when a country is is importing more than it's exporting and so the goods that are being produced because the price is so high like other countries are not going to buy it so the locals have to buy it but the locals are not making enough because they're spending most of their money buying gas so you have this social class divide that becomes very, very apparent. And someone once said to me that it's not poverty that causes people to get violent. It's relative poverty. It's rel like if I'm broke and you're rich and you're not rubbing it in my face, like, cool, I don't care. I'm going to cross my feet and, you know, watch Netflix all day because like that's the life that I want and I have no problem with that. But when our basic needs are so difficult to, you know, so difficult to meet that I can't buy a gallon of milk to feed my kids and you're riding around in a Cadillac, like something doesn't feel quite right. And as an entire population, they get irritated and they start breaking things. They start breaking things. The grid starts to fail more often. The grid starts to fail more often. They start stealing electricity. And what do you know? Businesses buy more generators and the cycle continues. That's so fascinating and a great job, by the way, with with kind of linking and explaining that um, and just how, that connectedness, how one thing happening in Venezuela with oil prices can have a direct effect on a whole bunch of things, you know, happening in Haiti or the Dominican Republic or wherever. I mean, it, um, when I described this to someone that was there was, there was someone she was from Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. She said the exact same thing that I'm describing in Haiti happened in Congo. So I'm like, this is not something that's, you know, it, it, there's no culture that owns this. This is just how the, the, the industry, the market works. But now here's, here's the silver lining. And this is kind of something that I, I, I like to, because I'm so like, I'm such a questions guy. I find that very often the answers are in the question. So once I figured out like, okay, this is what's happening. And I'm like, okay, this vicious cycle, like, how do you stop it? The answer is in the question. Every vicious cycle can be reversed into a virtuous cycle. So in, in our example, if the business all of a sudden, they don't need the generator anymore. Say that they're generating their electricity in some way that doesn't require fossil fuels and still behaves in the same controllable, like they can turn it on and off whenever they want. And it's there, quote unquote, 24 seven. If it still behaves like a generator, but it doesn't use a fuel, then it doesn't matter what happens in Venezuela. The cycle breaks. And if they can use it whenever they want, then if the grid is like, uh, you know what, 
we're not producing, we're not producing enough electricity right now. Can you please turn your generator on? And those are the ancillary services that I talked about in the mission statement at the beginning. There are, you know, this is something that the grid does here in the U.S. They, they pay businesses to either turn off some of their, some of their appliances or to turn on some of their generators to really help them keep the grid, you know, that seesaw that I talked about balanced. So not only is the business energy independent, but now they're working hand in hand with their local utility to keep, you know, everything balanced. And since, you know, they're not worried about price fluctuations, the relative poverty is not so much in your face anymore. And people can actually study at night and, you know, get on Upwork and get a job instead of, you know, looting. <laughs> the entire cycle starts to get reversed. And that's what we're trying to do. Right. It's far more than, I mean, obviously it's incredibly important. You have to take care of the planet and things of that nature, right? But I think, and that's something that's really often missed, especially, you know, I don't want to get into this at all, but especially with the political things with climate change going on, specifically in the U.S., it's something that um, people get blinded to because of those politics. They forget to really do the research and see how big of an impact the climate change issue is from a global perspective. Like you said, it's the elephant. It's not the parts of the elephant. It's the elephant that's that's the problem in doing so. So really curious. I, I want to know too, you know, kind of back uh, specifically about your solution. How are how how is the pitching going? You know, when you're trying to get your, your customers, your clients, and things uh, in that case as well. What types of responses are you getting? What types of things are you learning, and and things of that nature as well to really start to get this solution into the hands of some of these um, businesses at a smaller level, and obviously, hopefully, grow globally. Yeah, uh, I mean the the conversation is very different depending on where the business is. When we first started, it, we it's like the design was very much well. I wouldn't say it was very much infancy. The design wasn't fully fledged out yet. There were a lot of parts that we knew we could get, but we had no idea how difficult or you know how specialized the design would have to be. But because the problem was so prominent and well understood in Haiti that we were able to get a couple of clients, no problem. It was when we realized that, okay, to make, to deliver on this promise, we're, we're selling them an entire sandwich, but really, we really we need to get good at slicing the salami first. And here's what I mean by that. The micropower plant that we want to, to deploy around the world is it consists of three parts. The energy conversion piece that turns heat and sunlight into electricity, the energy storage piece, which is where hydrogen and batteries come into play, and the control of the aspect that does the communication with the grid to tell it to turn it on and off and, and so forth. And it networks all of these together because in, in my opinion, and this is something that uh, when I went through the Clean Tech Open, uh, 2018, I, my, my mentor was talking to me and initially, you know, it, this micro pop, well, it wasn't so micro back then. I mean, I wanted to make an entire ship out of this thing and wheel it in and out of disaster, disaster, uh, ridden sites and just provide electricity, like on demand, like right after a hurricane, like that was the vision back then. Uh, Cause I thought like, that's how you reverse, you reverse the cycle. You, you know, you serve people right when they need it most. And he asked me, I'll never forget this. He asked me, like, why make one giant ship? Why not make, like, 100 tiny little ships and just network all of them together like a hive? I thought, huh, that's a pretty good idea. I could probably build 100 of these much faster than, you know, one giant ship. So this idea of, like, having a distributed power plant, it, just, it got very attractive. And I started looking at what, you know, what a lot of these solar installations are starting to do. And that's exactly it. There are solar installations that talk to each other. And depending on what's going on with the weather and the clouds, like they just, you know, they, they're talking and they're operating as a distributed network. But that's besides the point. The power plant was, you know, these, these three pieces. So you can think of it as, you know, the salami, the lettuce, and the bread. The energy conversion piece, the salami. If we, if we don't get good at doing that, the entire thing is, it, it's, it's null and void altogether. Like we're, we're, we're dead before we even, you know, get out there. So 
what's the market for that? And that's when I started looking at, you know, heat recovery and how big that implication really is. And so we've been talking to, well, just reaching out to, uh, with the pandemic, it's been a little difficult because you can't just like pick up the phone or just walk into a business and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Can can we talk for a little bit? Like that's that's a little frowned upon, especially in the, you know, the food and beverage industry. And oil and gas too, because they're, they're heavily guarded. I mean, it, it's a matter of national security, but that's besides the point. Reaching out to them on LinkedIn and just like trying to make phone calls, you know, while working full time and just like managing my team and like collaborating all of us in unison to really just like all have the same approach so that we can look at these different industries and see, okay, who, who's got the deep pockets that is an early adopter that is really excited to work with us right now. And that's what we're in the process of determining. And again, to, to my surprise, like I, I mean, I, I love baking, like I, my house, uh, I should say my mother's house, like every Thanksgiving, my mom would cook. I mean, we have Haitian Thanksgiving, so it's a little different. It's not the typical, like <laughs> mashed potatoes and green beans, like it's, it's a little different, but you know, my mom would take care of the, the main course. My brother, um, he would help her out, you know, with the turkey and I would take care of dessert because I, for whatever reason, I'm just, I gravitate towards baking. So when I realized that, hey, you know, I could I could help grocery stores and industrial bakeries, you know, turn into power plants and save a whole lot of electricity and gas, I got really excited. I'm like, this is a client, this is a customer segment that I that I love and I want to work <laughs> with. So you know, it, we've been having conversations, and there's actually um, a conference that I'm going to be speaking to hopefully in October. It's one of the largest conference when it comes to like baking equipment for commercial commercial businesses. So like I'm I'm really excited about that. But at the same time, like oil and gas is moving so fast and there are so many opportunities. There's so many opportunities. Like Shell has certain accelerators to really help startups commercialize their product that directly impact their bottom line. And it looks like we'd be a good fit. But you know I'm, I'm, the verdict is is not out yet on that. So it's very possible in a couple of months, I'll be part of that accelerator program and I'll, you know, I'll be working in conjunction with Shell to, you know, create a, a heat recovery system that they can install at every single one of their refineries. That's impressive. Best of luck to that next month uh, to get going on. Cause that would be a remarkable opportunity. You're asked fingers crossed, baby fingers crossed with that as well. I'm just kind of curious uh, from a business perspective, when you're telling the, uh, and you're, you're trying to pitch to these customers, whether it be a grocery store chain with, you know, in their bakery units or things of that nature in, in Haiti or the U S or wherever, when you, when you're making those pitch, what seems to work? Or do you pitch more about, Hey, you're going to be literally saving energy and re reutilizing your energy or is it more about you're going to be saving these this amount of money by having the renewable energy and it'll pay for itself? I would imagine, you know, more of a long term um, investment kind of back. To to be honest, it it changes for well for oil and gas. I can't I can't say quite yet because we haven't gotten that far to have those types of conversations. For bakeries, at least the, the types of bakeries we were looking at, we were talking to family-owned, like privately held, smaller bakeries that, you know, they didn't have like, it wasn't like a bimbo or a, a Sara Lee, you know, it was like a family-owned thing that just grew over the years and they just got to a certain size where, you know, they have something that's pretty close to an industrial operation. So we were talking to those guys, but that that's a middle market, small to medium business and, and there's a lot of variability in there so the motivation changes from person to person and as a startup it's it's my it's, i don't want to say it's my opinion or my advice because like i don't want somebody to like hear this and just think like oh this is how you do it right it's just like my style of selling is very much so like i'm gonna listen to you as much as i can and like I'm, I'm not like a marketing genius, so I don't have like years in the business to just have some intuition to know like, okay, this is what this person wants to hear. Like I'm gonna let them talk for as long as they want to talk, and I'm gonna listen and and really pay attention to the feeling and the keywords that they're using, and use that when I'm talking back to them. Like if somebody's talking, 
oh, they, they just want, like, actually, I was talking to a bakery recently. That's, uh, that's in Cambridge. They, they actually, <laughs> I met them at the farmer's market right outside my house. And when I read their story, it wasn't about saving energy or, or, or money. It wasn't about any of that. It was about what they believed in and they just, they wanted to be, they're good human beings and they wanted to reflect that in their business in every way possible. So I mean, when I spoke to them, it wasn't about, you know, the money. It wasn't about like, it was just like, hey, you're doing great things. I want to know what's driving you because I think it's the same thing and really try to develop a no like trust relationship with them. In this industry, like there's no, there's no magic, like growth hacking method. Like it's just straight up sales. You just, you have to meet with people and like share your energy with them and it, literally feel it. Like this feels like, <laughs> it sounds kind of weird, but like that's, that's what it is. You have to meet with them and let them like feel your vibe and know that like you are about what you say. Uh, Cause otherwise it's just like you're, I mean, what's, What's stopping them from saying, uh, you know what, we're just going to get solar panels, get them from, you know, Tesla or SunPower or whatever, and just, you know, call it a day. Yeah, they could do that, but that's not, I mean, depending on the installation, that's not what's going to give them the best rate on their return. So when you're in that startup phase and you're not like locked down, like this is what we're doing and we're only doing that and nothing else. Like if you're not, if you're not turning into a porcupine, like just just meet people where they're at and just do as much good as you can as long as it doesn't stray you too far from your original path. And who knows? Like in in that networking and just that doing good, like eventually it comes back. Absolutely, yeah. It's authentic. It's real, right? I mean, that's that, that's what you're going for: establishing that human connection with a like-minded purpose and and applying your solution uh, to help them out and 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 benefit them and things of that nature as well. So it's really good. Christian, uh, what types of anything would, that you would like to add in regards to your solution um, that maybe we didn't touch on or anything of that nature that, that makes utilizing heat and, and repurposing that into creating more energy and things of that nature, whether it's for the gas, oil and gas industry or bakeries or, uh, you know, or developing countries or things of that nature as well. Anything that you would like to add in regards to, to your wonderful solution here? Well, see, the thing is that concept is not new. What is new is the is what we're using to get that done. Because heat recovery systems, they've been around, like, especially when you start looking at like paper mills and you know steel and glass and ceramics, for example, like they have a lot of heat, like really high temperature heat um, that they reject. But you know that's only I want to say like twenty percent of the total heat recovery market that's available. Like most of the heat recovery market is in like low temperature ranges and there are only certain fluids and i'll explain what i mean by that in a second there are only certain fluids that will work at those temperature ranges if you, if you want to think of a heat recovery system as a refrigerator running backwards if you ever have like one of those tall i'm not talking like one of those small like college light refrigerators i'm talking like one big standing ones that you can like turn around and feel the heat coming out of the back it's basically that just working in reverse. And what's happening is that there's a fluid in there that's running through the compressor and running through coils. That fluid, you know, it, it's it's just, let's just call it a working fluid. It's the same thing that's, you know, in your car running the air conditioning. It's just a working fluid. Different fluids have different properties. And back in, I want to say the 70s, these guys that were working in, um, air conditioning systems. They said, hey, why why should we go through all that trouble and, and make these, you know, these fluids that are very complicated chemically and very bad for the environment? Why don't we just use carbon dioxide instead? I don't know why that idea never took off. But fast forward now, actually fast forward 30 years. There are a couple of guys at MIT that had a similar idea but they weren't thinking about air conditioning systems. They were thinking about you know, power plants. Like instead of using steam, why not use carbon dioxide? And since then, a lot of research, namely, mostly with the Southwest Research Institute down in Texas, has been done on the, the intricacies and then the material science of using carbon dioxide 
to turn heat into electricity instead of using steam or, or neon or argon or, or freon or whatever other fluids there are, that are out there. And it turns out that it's the most energy, well, I shouldn't say energy efficient. It's the most efficient and energy dense system you could build. So for the smallest possible footprint, you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And that's really important if you're going to put the system in somebody's, you know, if somebody's bakery or in somebody's backyard. Like the size of it matters. And the efficiency matters quite a bit because, again, when we talked about generators, most generators are about 35, 30, 35% efficient. So that, you know, 65 to 70% is just wasted. If you take half of that and convert it into electricity, that's a whole lot more than a third. So that's why the efficiency comes into play. And we, we actually partnered with the Southwest Research Institute, and they're the ones that are going to be building our first prototype as soon as, you know, we have, we have like where we're going to test that prototype locked out. Cause it's not something that, oh, you just, you know, you just make it slightly bigger and that's it. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of engineering that's involved. It's, it doesn't scale linearly. So each version of our product has to be specifically designed for the amount of heat that's going to be available. So once we have that locked down, you know, it, it, things are going to take off very, very quickly and in, in a very big way. Beautiful. That sounds fantastic and really, really exciting. It's just getting that prototype down, right? Yeah. And, and that, that piece is actually going to prove that as we build more power plants using this technology, all of the carbon dioxide that we have to pull out of the atmosphere and put somewhere, we can put it in these power plants and keep it sequestered for 30 years at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, now you're getting it. <laughs> that's where the magic happens. That's how you reverse you know, climate change and, and keep, keep the genie in the bottle, so to speak. Right, you're just sucking it right back in so it's not being exposed and left out into the atmosphere which is where all the heat raising, which is where the water temp or the water temperatures increase and the water rises and the 1.5 degrees uh, for the global temperature. So that's the key. And that's, it's, it's getting to that point. Christian, how can people stay up to date uh, with the company, with Atlas Prime NRG? How can people stay up to date? How can they support, you know, follow on LinkedIn or any types of social medias or, or how could people kind of stay up to date and stay in touch? Yeah, easiest uh, ways to, is to follow the company page on LinkedIn. It's just Atlas Prime Energy, A-T-L-A-S, Prime, N-R-G, on LinkedIn. That's where we're, we're most active. And then that's any like big news and, and then shifts that we have, that's where we release the information. Because most people on Facebook and Twitter, are just, just they're not about that kind of news. <laughs> No. And, and that's another thing I'd, I'd like to, I'd like you to hear your perspective on this as well, because I think for some people learning uh, about this is important. They want to understand it a little bit. And obviously they're not going to, to, you know, become electrical engineers. They're not going to understand chemistry and all the chemicals that are involved and things of that nature. But where is like a, a low level place? Uh, that some that people can go outside of listening to this podcast episode, of course. But um, what where can you find some some good resources for people to learn more about this in a way that they can understand and you know really educate themselves and create more awareness around it? Um, on on which topic, climate change or? Well, let's let's go with let's go with the climate change as a whole to start. I've I've got a couple of resources with climate change. The best book, the best two books, actually no, the best book that I read on the topic is actually Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Ah, I read that one as well, my friend. Yeah, he, he breaks down the numbers and it, it, he makes it so simple to, to really understand like capital cost and like ongoing cost of just like carbon emissions. So it, it, it changes the perspective a little bit because there's some people that are just like, why are you building wind turbines? They're made out of oil. And they're like, mm, it's not the same. It's not the same. So reading um, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster by Bill Gates is where I, I suggest anyone to start and then read either Project Drawdown or um, Renewables Without the Hot Air by David McKay. Okay. Project Drawdown and Renewables Without the Hot Air. I'll have to add that to the list. Yeah. So those two books are the best one in terms of looking at the different solutions that are available. Of course, none of them talk about using you know, carbon dioxide to turn heat into electricity because it's, you know, it's kind of new, but those are, those two are the best in terms of like commercially readily available and, and operating solutions that are, 
that are out there. So Beautiful. Christian, I felt like we could probably chat for another a couple hours, to be honest with you, uh, on this podcast episode. It's such a fascinating topic, so perhaps we'll have to have you on again in the future, and, and hopefully you're, you're you're working with Shell at that point, uh, and things are going well. So, Christian, thank you so much uh, for coming on and chatting with us today on today's episode. I find your solution fascinating. I think it's uh, it's one of those things where I love the analogy of, of the dominoes, where you kind of are starting at it, and you're looking to just kind of knock them all over in a, in a successive pattern. And, and that's where it kind of starts down at that root level. So thanks. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's Christian LaCour. He is the founder CEO of Atlas Prime NRG joining us today, talking about his solution uh, to reverse climate change one business at a time. So uh, again, fascinating episode. If you want more information, as always, you can go check them out on LinkedIn. They share some pretty good articles on there as well. So you can understand a little bit about, for example, carbon dioxide for heat recovery. Uh, there's an article that I just read not too long ago on LinkedIn that's on their page. And if you missed that, you can just, again, search Atlas Prime NRG. Uh, they're out of Massachusetts. So search for that and you should be able to find them and get some more updates. We'll have all the links readily available throughout the week on our Instagram, Facebook pages. And of course, uh, you can check the video format on YouTube for this episode. So thank you all again for tuning in and listening to this edition of the Talking Solutions podcast. Looking forward to our next episode. And until then, enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening to the Talking Solutions with the Chesh podcast. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode, and you can find out more about our featured guests and their solutions on our Talking Solutions podcast Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels as we focus on highlighting individuals providing solutions to social problems and bringing optimism to the world.